Welcome to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hi, I'm Kim Marcellus, Senior Editor of McKnight's Long-Term Care News. For the last several weeks, we've been detailing the complicated challenges facing rural nursing homes. Today, I'm welcoming an operator in from the trenches to discuss how demographics, payments, and policy are making it impossible to keep the doors open in some communities. Kimberly Green is COO of Oklahoma-based Diakonos Group, which operates nine skilled nursing and rehab facilities, one assisted living community, and six intermediate care facilities for adults with developmental disabilities. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you, I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you for following all along with this series and being willing to talk with us and share an operator perspective here. I know a couple of years ago, Diakonos was faced with the same decision many providers we've been highlighting in our rural series are dealing with right now. And that's really grappling with this question of whether to stay or close up for good. How agonizing is that decision-making process for someone in your position and for your company? I think that it was probably one of the most difficult decisions I've made in my career, and it was definitely one of the most emotional. It was excruciating. So our building was very, very special. It was in very rural Oklahoma, and it was one of the largest, or it was the largest employer in town. And it was in a town that is like many small towns where the young people are moving away, and so the town is trying to survive. And so that building was very important to that town and not just for the employment, but also for the history, because the people that we had in that building helped build that town, knew the history of that town. Mm -hmm. And so they had people in the community that were going to visit them. So we didn't shut it down because we didn't have census. We had excellent census. The building was strong and we had community support. The problem ended up being the staffing and, of course, funding. So again, you're not alone in this. I know some numbers provided to us by ACA indicate about 200 rural nursing home closures since 2020. And I know in reporting this, states like Oklahoma and Nebraska have seen this trend really going back to 2000, accelerated during the pandemic. But it's more than just numbers, because if you take it piecemeal and look at one individual facility closing, maybe it doesn't sink in. I really wanted to get a sense from you of what's at stake with each of these closures And as they add up, the meaning or the implications for access to care in rural communities as a whole. You know, I think that this is one of my biggest soapboxes whenever we talk about these rural facilities, because as I watch the data come out and I see the people talking about it, especially the legislators, they feel like we're overbedded in the United States and they are not looking at the big picture of what's coming in the future. And so whenever we have these closures, just in short term, so just that, okay, let's just look short term. We have residents moving far away from their life. It's not just a bed to them. It is their place in life. There is a difference between space and place. And these Mm -hmm. rural facilities help feed that sense of purpose and the history and the people that visit them. And when they go out on activities, it is their place, not just a space. And then they move away from their family, friends, and staff that they know and are loving on them. And they move hours away. And people aren't thinking about that. It's not just about, well, we have too many beds here, so let all the rural homes close. You close those homes, and then these people move hours away. There's no one to visit them. And then the staff in the area, they don't have jobs. There's not enough jobs in that area for all of them. 
the housekeepers, the dietary, they're going to have to travel to do that. And then it hits that community financially so hard when it's the biggest employer in town in a struggling community. It's revenue for them, but it's also revenue for just all of those local areas because that's where the staff go and spend their money. And so if they are traveling hours away to work, then they will spend the money there. That leaves the community with no access to skilled nursing, which is very needed. Someone gets pneumonia when someone falls and breaks a hip. Those people are recovering from some of life's worst things in a very delicate time of their life hours away. And then when someone needs long-term care, they don't have access to it in the area. And it just impacts every aspect of life for aging adults in that area and their families. And we just see such bad results and sad results because within around a year, I mean, if you look at the data, around one year of moving a geriatric patient to a different facility, they pass away. It's very traumatic experience at that age. Very traumatic. And people don't understand that. At this point in their life, they've created another place. They have those friends and family that are going to visit, especially in those rural areas. There's a lot of involvement with the community and the families. That's all gone. So when they wake up in the morning, what is there? And people are not thinking like that. So let's talk a little bit about some of the factors that are contributing to, I'm going to say a collapse, not that you're not working valiantly to keep these buildings open, but if you don't have all the supports to uphold the structure, it will crumble eventually. You mentioned demographics already, reimbursement, obviously. What are some of the most important factors and ones that you think really need some policy attention to keep access in these communities? Well, some of the factors that bring on that closure is that those small homes, we have to remember, they're not getting those skill dollars, those Medicare A dollars. And that's what other communities tend to rely on, especially if you're in an urban area. Because around 80% of a traditional skilled nursing facility, 75 to 80%, are going to be long-term care. And most long-term care, at least in the state of Oklahoma and many, many other states like Florida and Texas, things like that, they're Medicaid. And so you have these facilities that have this huge burden of Medicaid. And so they survive by getting those skilled patients in to get the Medicare A revenue. And then that sort of balances out so they can have some sort of margin there. In a rural facility, you don't have that. So about 90 90 to 100% are going to be the long-term care. And most of those in a small community, a rural community, are going to be Medicaid. And so to staff these facilities, you have to pay a better wage than whatever is around in the area. So the local McDonald's, the local Dollar General, the local Walmart, or else those people will work there because they're making more. So we have to have competitive pay. And how do you have competitive pay when you're basically relying on Medicaid, which in many states out there, such as Oklahoma, that we get a flat rate. It is a flat rate. It is what it is. That's all you get. There is not a level playing field, even for Medicaid dollars, in order to take care of our long-term care. It costs more to find staff. Like when you have an opening, you can't just fill it right away. There's not people. So you're trying to recruit from these towns that are close, or you have to get people to relocate. That costs money as well. You have more money for the HR. You have more money for the recruiting. And you can't get things locally. 
some of these rural facilities, there's not a Walmart close. There's not a DME company close. So you pay more for everything. You either have the mileage or you have the shipping or you have the extra fees to get people out there to do training. And so everything about having a rural facility is much more expensive, but yet they're relying on less money. And so I think that whenever we think about these rural facilities, we have to remember that there is not a level playing field between urban facilities and rural facilities. And people are thinking it's less expensive to run one. And that's simply not true. So would something like a rural rate add-on work? Is there any political will for an idea like that in your state anyway? In my state, I would not say that there's a political will. But what I think is there are more and more people coming in that want to make changes that need to be educated. So we have a lot of younger, as far as experienced legislators in Oklahoma that I think one of the biggest things, and again, this is another soapbox of mine, and as you know me, Kim, I have many with this industry, I'm just so passionate, is that we have to change public perception, and that will help change legislative perception as well. So if the public sees us as a value add to society, then they will fight for us and they will not allow these aging adults not to get the funding, and we could get those add-ons. We could get the Medicaid increases. We could fight CMS. They would understand the staffing. But if you could change that public perception, then the money follows. That pressure on the legislators follow. But things like rural add-ons are going to be absolutely necessary. We have to remember what's coming in the next decade, and that's 37 million aging adults hitting age 65. So we have 10,000 baby boomers a day hitting that age. And as they progress through that, we'll get the younger people that have the significant issues, the really exacerbated COPD, the cancers, the Parkinson's, those kinds of things. We get those younger. But then around 70, 71 is whenever those people start hitting our doors traditionally. So at 10,000 people a day, we don't have enough beds. We don't, and we won't have enough beds in the urban areas and you're closing the small facilities. In the rural areas, there will be no support. And I don't think anybody's thinking about that and planning for it because we tend to operate for our industry, not on our side, but on the legislative side and the public side on crisis management. Instead of being proactive and saying, this is what's coming, this is how we're going to solve this problem, they wait until it happens, and then they start fighting. And we need some warriors to fight for us now. I was going to say, I think the one thing that is completely overlooked here with these closures is that this is a sector where people are not rushing in to buy and build skilled nursing. If these buildings go away, they're not coming back in most places, right? No, they're not going to. And the other thing is, as you watch in your position, post-COVID, there's going to have to be huge change in our industry. We saw that with traditional buildings, infection can spread faster. So the public and legislators really want change. And one of my biggest conversation topics lately has been that people think we don't want that change and that we're fighting against that change. We're absolutely not. We love the small house models. We love those ideas. We would love to do those things. But there's not the funding for us to even survive now 
let alone go into buildings that are 50, 60, 70 years old. There's never been funding to remodel and they're starting to fail. So that's another cost on the rural facility side is these are old, old buildings that's never had money put into them because there hasn't been money to do that. So we have plumbing systems failing. We have electrical systems failing. There has to be money and incentives to upgrade these facilities as well as legislative incentives to do these either small house models or be able to fulfill what the legislature and the public are wanting. There's just not the money to do that. And I think it's important that people understand the ramifications and the dominoes that are being kicked right now. All right. I think I've already hit some of these points with you, but I just wanted to let you close with really solid warning to lawmakers and also to the public. Again, just this whole sense of what really is at stake and how pivotal this moment is for rural nursing homes. We can't be alarmist. We can't wait till the last minute to do these things. So we know what's coming and we know these aging adults are coming and we're not even able to care for the ones that we have in these rural areas without moving them and creating catastrophic consequences for them and the communities that they are in. As you said earlier, these buildings, once they're shut down, they won't reopen. And in the future, that is going to have a huge impact. And we just need, as I said earlier, we need those legislators to be educated and to understand what's coming and look at what's coming now and put a plan in place before it's too late because we're already behind. We have to catch up. All right, Kimberly, we'll let you climb down from the soapbox for a little bit, but I'm glad you got up there for us. I think you have some important insights and certainly it's not been easy for your company. Thank you for being here with us and sharing a little bit of the detail. For McKnight's, I'm Kim Marcellus. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers Podcast. For the latest in long-term care news, visit McKnight's.com.